As you're turning to John chapter 19 this morning, I want you to listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And then he went on in those verses there at the beginning of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians to define the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Many of you know this already this morning, but some may not be familiar with the meaning of the word gospel. It literally means good news. And the good news, Paul said, is that Christ died. Now, some may think that's bad news, but it's not. It's good news because he was buried. Well, Pastor, that doesn't sound like good news to me. Well, it is because he didn't stay buried. Three days later, he rose again. Now, last week, we, in our study of the Gospel of John, we talked about the first part of the Gospel, how that Jesus died for our sins. There at Calvary, Jesus suffered as he died for our sins. He was scourged, and then later the soldiers drove a a makeshift crown of thorns onto his head. At Calvary, Jesus suffered as he died for our sins. At Calvary, Jesus was mocked as he died for our sin. After planting that crown of thorns on his head, they, they put upon the back of Jesus a purple robe as they stood there and they mocked him and they shouted, Hail, King of the Jews! And at the same time, they made him suffer even more as John records how they hit him in the face. At Calvary, Jesus fulfilled Scripture as he died for our sin. Three times in our study last week, we read the phrase that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Like I said then, Christ's suffering on the cross was not merely the tragic end of a life well lived. No, no, it was the fulfillment of Scripture, which goes to show that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Christ, the Son of God which is important with respect to John's stated stated objective in John chapter 20, which is to help people come to faith in Christ and become the recipients of eternal life. We'll see another prophetic fulfillment in our study today. Then finally, last week, we talked about how Jesus paid the price as he died. For our sin. When Jesus uttered those immortal words, it is finished. He made possible what God offers to anyone who is willing to come to him by grace through faith, and that is the free gift of eternal life. Next month, we are hosting the first responders of our community, and 
And we're going to be giving away a, a lot of really, really great gifts. And those gifts will be free to those whose names are drawn. But here's what we will understand. They were made possible by someone else. They were paid for by someone else. That is, someone else, either in this church or in our community, has paid the price for that free gift. And the only thing that that first responder will need to do next month as their name is called and as they are offered that free gift, the only thing they're going to have to do is walk up here and accept it. And so it is with salvation. At Calvary, Jesus paid the price. And because of that, God can offer eternal life for free to anyone who's willing to accept it. Somebody say amen. amen. What a humbling thought when we think that Christ died for our sins. But the gospel doesn't end there. He was buried. Now, the fact that he was buried may not seem too significant, but its significance should not be overlooked simply because Paul includes it in the gospel. The gospel that he said in the book of Romans was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So, the burial of Jesus is far from being insignificant. And that's because it confirms that he died and it affirms the truth that he rose again. Something that we will consider in the next several messages in this series, the the newness and the power that comes from the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. Now, in addition to the two things that I just mentioned, Christ's burial is significant in at least three other ways, and that's where we'll focus our attention this morning. Number one, the fact of Christ's burial is prophetically significant. Look at verse 38, John chapter 19 and verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate, or he begged him, or he pleaded with him, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave, gave him permission. He granted his request. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus. Now that name ought to be familiar. We met Nicodemus, first of all, in John's Gospel in chapter 3. It's the Nicodemus, and, and John points this out. It's the Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night. And it's the same Nicodemus to whom Jesus said twice, Ye must be born again. And it's the same Nicodemus that in his mind, the only way you could be born again was to go back into your mother's womb and be born. 
And that's when Jesus took the opportunity to explain to Nicodemus, no, there are two births. There is a physical birth, which is by the flesh, which is by water, not baptism, but but the physical, the natural process of the water breaking, you know all about that. And Jesus talked about the fact there is a physical birth. But then he said there's also, Nicodemus, listen, there's a spiritual birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he told him this, if you don't experience that second birth, if you're not born again, by the Spirit of God, you can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, you can't be saved without being born again. It's that Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. Verse 42, there laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. All four Gospels mention this man from Arimathea by the name of Joseph. Mark says he was an honorable counselor, meaning that he was a member of the Jewish high court known as the Sanhedrin. He was a good and just man, according to Luke. And John says here in our text that he was a disciple of Jesus. But then he adds this, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Allow me to digress just a moment from the prophetic significance of Christ's burial and talk for just a moment about the actions of this secret disciple. The bottom line is Joseph was like a number of Christians in this day and age. He was afraid to take a public stand for Christ for fear of what his peers would say. But may I remind you this morning of the words of Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 11, where he said this, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. I mean, you, you would have to agree with me this morning, at least in the sense that, that there is no fear on the part of some in this day and age who are unafraid to take a stand for what they believe, no matter how wrong they may be. We see it on the news all the time. There are those who, who choose a, an alternative perverted lifestyle, and they hold parades, and, and, and they, they hold marches, and they show up at Major League Baseball parks all across the nation on Pride Night. They're not ashamed. The abortion crowd, they're not ashamed. Antifa is probably the newest group to join the let's take to the streets and act stupid group. And they're loud and proud. And then you've got those Texas Longhorn and Dallas Cowboy people. 
who don't seem to have a bit of shame whatsoever. They wear t-shirts. They wear hats. They wear jackets. And they are actually proud to be associated with those teams. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And they could care less what their peers think. An OSU graduate and a Texas graduate were talking one day, and the Texas grad said, so what does OSU mean? Lowered his head, it means Oklahoma stomped us. What does UT UT mean? He said, it means us too. But in all seriousness, why is it that God's people, I'm talking about us, find it so hard to stand up for Jesus? Granted, Joseph was a secret disciple for a while. But when he saw what Jesus went through Publicly on the cross? I'm talking about the humiliation, the shame, the torture. His heart was so touched and emboldened that he went and boldly asked for the body of Jesus. The songwriter wrote years ago and asked, Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. Notice what impact Joseph's courage had on Nicodemus. And if I understand the the scriptures correctly, every time we read of Nicodemus, he's coming to Jesus by night. But now he's courageously stepping forward with this man, Joseph. I mean, it's awesome to see what the courage of just one individual can do to encourage others. And that reminded me this week of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 2, where Paul describes how the zeal of the Corinthians had provoked, is the word that he used, had provoked or stimulated that of the Christians in Macedonia. I'm telling you this morning, church, what we need are some Christians who aren't afraid to take a stand, whose zeal will provoke others in a good way to be bold and courageous witnesses to those around them. In our Bible study classes on Sunday morning, we're studying right now what it, what it, what it looks like to be all in. Last week we talked about the fact that a a believer who is all in is bold in their witness. In Acts chapter 4, they saw Peter and John and they considered them to be ignorant and unlearned men. But yet they took notice of the boldness that they had in their stand 
for Jesus Christ. And I'll say what we said last week in our Bible study classes, that there will be no boldness in our witness if there is no depth in our walk. And I would submit to you this morning that much of the the lack in sense of boldness when it comes to, to being a witness for Christ has much to do with the fact that many believers are just not mature in their faith. There is no depth in their walk, and therefore there is no boldness in their witness. As for the prophetic significance of Joseph burying the body of Jesus, we have to step outside the narrative of John's gospel for just a minute and read what Matthew said in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57. He said this, when the even was come, there came a rich man, note that, a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also was Jesus' disciple. Just as the events surrounding Christ's death were, were no accident, neither, listen, neither were the, the actions associated with his burial. Because Isaiah prophesied in the Old Testament, and excuse me, and he, he said this concerning the burial of the Messiah, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Last week we talked about how Jesus died on the cross between two thieves and now we're reading about Joseph, a rich man, was burying the body of Jesus in his, old, in his own tomb and that is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9. Yet again, more proof that Jesus was the Messiah. That he was who he said he was. Not only is the fact of Christ's burial prophetically significant it's also biblically significant unfortunately there are some religious liberals and skeptics who would have us believe that Jesus really didn't die and if he did die then he never resurrected instead of accepting the biblical account of Christ's death burial and resurrection they have contrived a, a number of theories to try and replace biblical truth. For example, they, they may throw at you the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he just uh, passed out from the blood loss, and that it was the coolness of the tomb that revived him. Well, that cannot be believed for at least two reasons. First of all, it doesn't work medically. From what I have been able to read, if Jesus passed out from the blood loss and the tissue damage he suffered when they whipped him and then crucified him, the coolness of the tomb would not have revived him. It would have sent him into shock. The proponents of the swoon theory would have us believe Listen to this, that Jesus, having been beaten near to the point of death, having hung on a cross in the heat of the day for six hours, and having been left with no food or water, somehow mustered the strength while in the grave to roll away a stone that has been estimated to have weighed as much as 2,000 pounds, and then walked out of the tomb. 
Well, that might make for great television, but it's not biblically true. The second reason I can't believe the swoon theory is a political one. Christ's enemies were the ones who orchestrated his crucifixion. And they stood by the whole time to make sure that he was dead. Like D-E-A, dead. A Roman guard who, this was not his first crucifixion, and who no doubt knew a dead man when he saw one, certified Christ's death by shoving a spear into his side. As John said in verse 34, forthwith came there out blood and water. Listen, Jesus was dead. Christ's enemies wanted him dead so bad that they would have never let his body out of their sight until they were certain, 100% certain that he was dead. Because they could not afford to have it appear as if he had risen. And then there's the wrong tomb theory that says the disciples believed Jesus had risen because they went back and they looked for his body in the wrong tomb. This theory says that Jesus' body was still very much dead, but it was in another tomb nearby. Well, again, that theory is full of holes, number one, because the disciples weren't idiots. Secondly, if the disciples went to the wrong tomb to look for Jesus, then that means that the Roman soldiers would have been guarding the wrong tomb. Besides these things, if the body of Jesus was in another place, then his enemies could have easily squelched all of Christianity forever by simply searching the other tombs until they found his body. You with me? If Christ's enemies could have produced a body, then I'll be honest with you, there would be no need for us to be here today. Because Christianity would not be unlike other religions whose leaders lived and died. But listen, Jesus was different. He died and he rose again. Jesus didn't merely pass out and then revive in the tomb, and the disciples did not look in the wrong tomb for his body. And then let me just say this, his body wasn't stolen. That's another wrong-headed theory that, that some people put forth. This theory says that the disciples came in and they stole the body of Jesus so they could make it appear that he had risen from the dead. If the disciples did steal the body, then they were spreading a lie when they later preached about the resurrection. And that's one of the points that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he's defending the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He makes that point that that means that what we're preaching is a lie. 
However, the fact remains that history records that these men, these disciples, later called apostles, history records their dying rather than their recanting their faith in a risen Savior. Now, come on, think about it. It's not unusual to hear of, of people giving their life for what they believe to be true. We hear about that all the time. He died for the cause, and he believed the cause was right. But when's the last time you heard of someone dying for something that they knew was a lie? History tells us that Matthew was run through with a spear and Mark was burned alive and Peter was crucified upside down and Paul was beheaded. And for what? A lie? These men stole the body of Jesus. They somehow hid it somewhere and now they're out there preaching the truth of a, of a, of a man who lived and died and was buried and rose again. And then they're going to die for that? Come on. It's absurd. These men were willing to die because they knew that they were telling the truth. Jesus had been dead and was alive again. And they knew it to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt fact of the matter is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he didn't faint he died and having died he was buried which is prophetically significant and it's biblically significant but then I would submit to you this morning that it's also personally significant one of the truths that I really tried to drive home last week in talking about the death of Jesus was that he died for us. And I'm talking every one of us. Peter said it like this, who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. But here's the question this morning that I want to pose to you near the close of the message today. If Jesus took upon himself our sins at the cross, then where are those sins now? I would like to think that when Jesus was buried, our sins were buried with him. Listen to these words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I would submit to you this morning that when we come to Christ for salvation, two things occur. Number one, our sins 
are forgiven. Now, folks, that's good news. Every evil, wicked, mean, bad, nasty thing I ever did before receiving Christ as my Savior was forgiven the moment I called on His name. Hallelujah. Paul said it like this in Ephesians 1, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And he said this in Colossians 2, And you, being dead in your sins, hath he quickened or made alive together with him, having forgiven you some of your trespasses. Is that what it says? What does it say? What does it say? All your trespasses. But pastor, what about those sins that I commit after I got saved. Well, God's got those covered too. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The fact that Christ was buried means that our sins have been forgiven. And beyond that, it means that they have been forgotten. God said, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Do you ever find yourself reliving the sins of your past? You know what I'm talking about? Do you ever find yourself struggling with things that you confessed to the Lord years ago. And they haven't been a part of your life for a long time. But yet you're wrestling with those things. You're struggling with those things. Let me tell you something. When that happens... It's not God bringing those things up. God said he would forget our sins and remember it no more. So preacher, if it's not God, who is it? It's the devil. That's why he's called, among other things, the accuser of the brethren. Listen, the devil longs for us to live in the past. He loves for us to wallow around in self-pity and guilt because he knows that if he can get us to linger on the past, then we'll never experience God's victory in the present. Oh, how thankful I am this morning that when they carried the body of Jesus into the tomb, They carried my sins with it. And when he came forth after three days and three nights, he came forth without my sin. Church, listen, my sin and your sin, if you're saved, have been buried with Christ. And they are forgiven 
forgotten forever. So my question to you this morning is simply this. Are you living in the knowledge of sins forgiveness? As you sit there this morning, do you know that you know that you know? I'm talking without a doubt that you have been forgiven of your sin because you've received Christ as your Savior. Say, preacher, I know that. Then I want you to also understand this morning that those sins have been cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness to be remembered no more. Perhaps you're here and could acknowledge that you've been forgiven, but you're not free. For some reason, you just can't get past the past. Seems like every day you're having to to battle feelings of, of guilt and shame. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that's the devil doing what he does in your mind, knowing that if he can keep you bound, then you will never be free to experience the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give in John chapter 10 and verse 10. I've told you this before. Living in the past, it's like driving to work tomorrow and the whole way you're looking in your rearview mirror. It's going to be a wreck. Your Christian life is going to be an absolute wreck if somehow you don't get past the past. Don't let the devil convince you that you can't ever amount to anything for God because of what happened back here. What happened back here, if you've asked God to forgive you, He's done it. And the reason He doesn't ever bring that up to you is because He doesn't even remember it. The devil sure does. And He'll challenge you every day with that if you let Him. 